Father in heaven, we do love you, and we celebrate uh, these, these wonderful testimonies from Lucy and from Carson and from Aaron that, that are just emblematic of so many people who have come to this place of surrender and submission to acknowledge you as Lord. Father, we, we ask that each and every one of us that have gathered here today, both uh, here in this room and, and joining us online or wherever uh, your church may be scattered on a day like today, Father, that we would all grow in our understanding and our obedience to what it means to see you as Lord. Um, that your holy word, God, would speak to us now in a profound way, that it would paint a picture for us of the promise of what it means to know that you are with us, and that it would in, in, embolden us to live courageously for you, to, to continually, each and every day, demonstrate uh, the lordship that you have in our lives. And so for that, Father, we, we ask that it is only by your spirit, by your power, by your strength that we're able to do those things. And so, Father, uh, be with us now and guide us accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, church, <clears throat> fourth Sunday of Advent. How are we feeling, right? Christmas is literally this week, and I can't believe it. It's the last Sunday of Advent here in the church, and I know as we get closer to Christmas and our home, we kind of ramp up all the different ways that you typically celebrate the Christmas season. Like last night, we went and got in the car and looked at Christmas lights in some of the notable neighborhoods near us, and that's always a fun thing that we do, and it, and it kind of is emblematic of things we do, really starting at the end of Thanksgiving. Uh, I think it's pretty common for us. That, that Friday, really Saturday, I guess, when we get back in town from visiting grandparents, we'll come in, we take down all the fall colors, the browns, the yellows, the oranges come down, the red, white, and green goes up, and we get Snow Village out, we get uh, Nutcrackers out and Santa Clauses out. I mean, we just plaster the home with all the Christmas decor. Uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, is when we get the Christmas lights up, we go and buy a Christmas tree, decorate the tree, and that really just kind of launches us into the Christmas season. And we have all these things that we do that are so much fun, right? We'll, we'll build a gingerbread house at some point. We will go visit Santa and do that whole thing and go out to dinner that night. And uh, we have this advent calendar that we'll read together as a family. We do the Christmas lights. Of course, my favorite is, is obviously Christmas Eve services and gathering here together as a church family and the candlelight service, which is coming up this week. We have all these things to kind of mark the Christmas season. And, and really underneath it all, and what drives so much of it, is this spirit of anticipation. You know, like you're, you're constantly counting down and looking forward to Christmas Day. In, in fact, we have not just the advent calendar, we have some of these nutcrackers where you can kind of adjust the dates and count down how many days are left until Christmas, and it's not unusual at all right now to hear some child in our home say, Alexa, how many more days until Christmas? There are five more days until Christmas. You know what I mean? Like, you just hear that all the time because it's, it's anticipation, and, and we're constantly waiting for Christmas Day, Christmas morning, and I think the reason that anticipation is so strong is not just the things you get to enjoy during Advent season, but Christmas morning, Christmas Day itself, and, and I realize not everybody uh, is always able to experience the same thing, but, but by nature, we look upon Christmas morning and Christmas Day fairly fondly, right? I mean, in our home, you get to wake up, you have presents exchange, you have a good breakfast, later that day you go and visit family, you spend extended time with loved ones, and another great meal. It's just a day that can be filled with love and joy and peace and happiness. It's just no wonder there's so much anticipation to it, Right? And, and for me, I think all of that serves as a tremendous metaphor for life, right? That in many ways, life should be filled with these great moments 
and, and the, these, these glimpses of joy and happiness and, and all these things that we do to fill our lives with meaning and significance, but, but underneath it all should be anticipation, right? Anticipation for a day when it all reaches this fulfillment. It, it's like this metaphorical Christmas day that we're waiting for. And, and part of what I want us to see is that when you come through the Advent season, really through life, it's not just that we should look back on how Jesus was born, but how he will return, right? That part of how we live into this theme that we've been walking through this Advent season of God is with us is that it's leading us to that day of, of this ultimate day of his return and how amazing that's gonna be, that life is really designed to anticipate the glory and the joy of that moment. And, and that's really kind of what I want us to discuss today is, is for us to paint a picture. What does that day look like, right? How do we dive into that anticipation by getting a greater picture and understanding of what that day will entail and what it will bring so that it can bring the joy and the richness to this life that we all long for? And, and my hope is that in, in so doing, uh, we'll really be able to take one of these traditional Christmas songs that we often sing and make it a life prayer Right, that, that we see the power of anticipation by making our lives always anchored in that prayer of come long expected Jesus. Come and set your people free. That's what we want to explore today. So here's how we're going to do it. Grab your Bibles, turn to Zephaniah 3. Okay? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We always want to gift that to you. Best way to find Zephaniah, go find Matthew and hang a left and just keep kind of turning through the minor prophets until you, you stumble upon Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah, there's, there's several things I want to say about that before we read the passage. So just to recap this, this series, uh, what we've talked about in this theme of God being with us and the beauty of that promise, we, we've looked at a lot of different stories. And we started with the story of Jacob in his own personal exile, right, in the adversity he was experiencing with his own family. But in that story of him having God visit him in a dream, we saw the details of what it means to have God with us, right? That he's gonna protect us and guide us, that he's leading us to a certain place, that we're also gonna have a chance to see the permanency, that God never leaves us or forsakes us. And, and that story was really indicative of, of the fullness of God being with us and, and all of its uh, blessings and promises. But then we looked at the story of Joshua. And Joshua is a great story that, that kind of reminds us of those moments in life where we face the enormity of a task the enormity of a moment. He was following Moses' footsteps. He was leading people into the promised land, and, and he's overwhelmed. And so God gives him that reassurance. I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm not going to have you do this on your own. And, and how we need those assurances when God calls us to certain things that feel overwhelming. But, but that the beauty in that was to discover that God was not just wanting Joshua to fulfill a certain task. He wanted his heart. Right? That God's not just task-oriented. He's, he's heart-oriented. And the change that you see in this relationship of understanding that God is with us on a personal and a heart level. Then last week we had a chance to look at a more traditional Christmas message by, by focusing in on the significance of the story of Mary and Joseph and in this fulfillment of there being a Messiah, this Emmanuel, this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and embedded in that story answers the question, why is God with us? Why did he send his son? And the answer is to save his people from their sins. And so we just sat under the weight of that last week to really appreciate and acknowledge the beauty of being saved from sin. And, and so with all those things being established today, really kind of helps us see that, okay, the birth of Jesus brings us the assurance that this promise that God is with us is fulfilled, right? It is fulfilled. 
but it's not come yet in full, right? We're still waiting. We're still longing for it. And the fullness of this promise comes with Jesus' return. And that's where Zephaniah really can help paint a very powerful picture that I think uh, gives rise to this anticipation we were talking about. So, so here's some things about Zephaniah. And you can, if you want to kind of, it's a short book, you can kind of thumb along and see some of these references. Uh, you know, it's interesting because there's really not a lot known about many of the prophets. Like eight of the prophets, we don't know anything about them other than their names. Six of them, we just know the names of their father, right? So we'll be like, this is the prophet so-and-so who's son of so-and-so. Uh, but when you look at the first verse of Zephaniah 1, you see a pretty lengthy genealogy, at least by comparison's sake. Uh, four different generations that kind of take us back to, to Hezekiah, and we see a reference to Zephaniah offering these words and this message during the reign of Josiah. And, and I don't know how familiar you are with Josiah. I don't know the last time you've read through First and Second Kings, but, but Josiah took the throne when he was eight. Okay, so like, hey, you're eight. Here's a kingdom, right? I mean, this remarkable story. And what's really cool about Josiah is that he was following this long lineage of kings that did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you read through kings, you'll see that refrain over and over go, so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then all these terrible things that happened. So Josiah assumes a throne after several generations of, of wicked leadership and kings. He discovers the book of the law and, and is like mind blown at all the things that they haven't been doing, and he leads the nation into a period of reform. We've got to do this all over, and people repent and all this other stuff. And so that's where Zephaniah steps in, is under that reign of Josiah. Now, we don't know, did, did Zephaniah offer this prophecy prior to those reforms or after? It doesn't really matter. Either way, he is speaking to an immoral and corrupt society, uh, a, a society that's entrenched in waywardness and in running away from God. So if it was before those reforms, it makes sense because it's coming on the heels of all these terrible kings. If it's after the reforms, it still makes sense because clearly the reforms didn't take root, right? It, despite Josiah's best efforts, the, the people of God continued to rebel and run away and demonstrate this corrupt uh, and wayward, immoral approach to life. And so that's the context that Zephaniah is speaking into. And what he does is remind us that God is going to deal with immorality and wickedness. And I think that's an important thing for us to, to recognize, because it's not hard for us to imagine a corrupt and godless society. Like, I mean, we're, we're surrounded by it, not just here in our own world or our own culture, but really around the world as a whole. Like, we, we have numerous examples that we can point to of people living that corrupt, immoral approach to life. And, and so in some respects, this is a powerful book that reminds us that, that God doesn't let those things go undealt with. Right? He, he's going to deal with it. Right? He, he is going to address that level of wickedness and that sort of, of corruption. And the way that Zephaniah brings that to attention is he begins to refer to uh, the day of the Lord. It becomes a key phrase through the whole prophecy. The day of the Lord. He mentions it more than 23 times, or around 23 times, more than any other prophet. And, and it's basically pointing to this day of judgment, this day of reckoning. In fact, if you want to follow along in, in 114, now you've get a, you get a really great description of it. Here's how Zephaniah describes it in 114. He says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry, and that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. 
Merry Christmas, everybody. Go ahead and put that on your next Christmas ornament, right? Zephaniah 114, you know, it's just like so heavy. But that's like the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah. I mean, it is, it is judgment, it is destruction, it is wrath, okay? And that, that is God's response to wickedness and to evil. And so you, you get this refrain, but, but in the midst of it, you also get these references to a remnant. We see it a couple times in chapter two, the middle part of chapter three, that there's a remnant that, that God is gonna set aside, a, a group of people, a smaller group that will be found faithful. And, and that remnant becomes this holy nation, this royal priesthood, right? This new, new people of God that will in, inhabit and inherit this kingdom. And so when you start getting to chapter three, this discussion of the remnant begins to take center stage and we see that right there with the day of the Lord is not just judgment and wrath, but there is also restoration, right? And, and all of a sudden, Zephaniah and his conversation about the day of the Lord becomes a very messianic prophecy. Not, not messianic in the sense that it's pointing to the birth of Jesus, but to the return of Jesus. This great day of the Lord, well, yes, there will be a reckoning for wickedness and evil, but also restoration for those who are found faithful, that this ultimate kingdom that we long for and that we wait for. And so that's what Zephaniah is describing, and that's what we're going to pick up and read in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Follow along with me. It says, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you at the time that I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. I love Zephaniah 3. What a beautiful passage. I mean, it really speaks for itself. It's it's a very simple and direct and very picturesque kind of uh, poetic description of this coming kingdom. And so here's how I want to go about it today. I want to just kind of draw your attention to a couple of key elements of the passage first, and and then we're just going to look at it kind of through two different categories, okay? Um, So so the first uh, thing that I want to call your attention to is the reference to Zion, right? Seeing Zion is the way that this verse starts in verse 14. Now, Zion was an actual place. It was an actual mountain uh, that was often viewed to be the city of David, right? The temple was built right there. David captures this area. This is where he, he builds the temple just north of this mountain. And so this mountain becomes known as Mount Zion and is often seen to be the place where God dwells, right? It, it was kind of where, where Yahweh inhabited this, this area. But, but as you begin to progress through the history of God's people, Zion begins to point to the coming city of the golden age, right? Like, like the, the messianic fulfillment of God's kingdom, the, the, the fulfillment of this holy divine city. So it absolutely is pointing to this day of the Lord, right? This return 
of Jesus. So it, it carries tremendous significance when you see it. In addition to that, I want to point out to you that this is a passage that is built upon the promise that we've been talking about throughout this Advent series. I think it's in verses 15 and 17 right there that says on two different occasions, I am with you. Right, The Lord God, your king, he is, he is with you. I'm a mighty warrior who saves. So, so everything that we see is this culmination of this coming age of God being with his people, right? And so the, the tone of this prophecy is nothing but joy, right? It's, it's like joy unhinged, right? It's, it's seeing, it's shout aloud, it's praise, it's it's honor, and, and I want us to truly like try to identify with that for a moment. I mean, think about those moments in your life that you can point to that you really would say were just filled with joy, right? Moments that were overwhelming with happiness and laughter and peace and goodness and just that joyfulness that's so hard to find. Think about all those moments and multiply it exponentially. That, that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're anticipating. That, that's that metaphorical Christmas morning of Jesus' return, a day filled with joy at the highest level. That's the whole tone of this passage. And so what it does for us is it describes why it gives us so much joy. Right? What is going to initiate or cause or be catalytic to that joy that we'll experience. And, and so when I was thinking about the best way to look at these descriptions I was, I was hesitant to try to do this like verse by verse, line by line, and every little detail, because there's, there's really just so much. In fact, even what we're going to look at today is not exhaustive in terms of what is in this particular passage. There's a lot additional details that we could discuss this morning, but, but I'm going to at least highlight a few that stood out to me. And, and I want to do it not necessarily sequentially or in order, but just through a, a couple of categories, two categories that kind of stood out to me. On, on one hand, the obvious is what you receive from God on that day, right? The, the faithful remnant, when he brings in his kingdom and fullness upon Jesus' return, there's obviously these, these incredible blessings that we can anticipate that we kind of imagine receiving. And so we'll, we'll talk about how some of those are described. But you'll notice also that another category that exists in this passage is not just what you receive, but what's taken from you, right? Certain things are actually removed. And, and that also is very encouraging and appealing to me. And I was thinking about that even in light of, of the Christmas season, uh, because I don't know about you and some of your preparations for Christmas, but when you start kind of going through all these Christmas lists, especially for like your kiddos and things like that, you start realizing how much additional clutter is about to just come into your home. And so part of my preparation has been cleaning out the garage and trying to make space for all the new stuff that's about to get in there. And I started thinking about how great it would be if somebody came to me and said, you know, I'm not going to just give you a gift. I'm actually going to take things off your hands. I'd be like, that is awesome. Like, there's so much I want you to remove from my home. And, and that's kind of the same sort of thing, right? That it's not taking away in a, in a bad sense. It's, it's removing those things that we, we want to see taken away. And, and the celebration and the, and the beauty and the joy that comes with that sort of experience. And so we're going to look at it through those two categories, what, what we have removed for us and what is uh, given to us. And so let's start with what's taken away. And, and the first thing that kind of calls our attention to this notion is there at the beginning of the passage we read today that uh, he takes away this punishment, right? You see the way that 
that Zephaniah describes it there in 3, uh, verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. And, and that should carry some weight, especially if you were reading this book in context from the beginning of chapter 1 and 2, where you see all this language about wrath and vengeance and all this other stuff, that to, to recognize that punishment is a reality. And that's something we hit on last week. Like, like God is holy. He is righteous. Pu- punishment is necessary for God to maintain that sense of holiness and righteousness. And that shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Sometimes there's this mindset where we want to be like, man, wouldn't it be great if God just like gave everybody a free pass and, and just let it all work out? And, and in some ways that sounds nice, but, but at, this, at the same time, and you really think about it, it seems incredibly unjust. It, it seems to betray his holiness and righteousness because wickedness and evil need to be dealt with. And, and we know this, right? We don't respect parents that don't discipline their children. Right? You see these children do anything, say anything, get anything, and at some point you go, dude, like, where's mom and dad? Like, corral them, right? Because we know that, that corrupt behavior needs to be corrected. And so in order for the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God to exist, punishment has to exist because sin is real. This world is broken. And so you see this punishment described in these first few chapters, but for the remnant, for the faithful, they reach this day of the Lord mindful of all of it, and the response is actually that punishment is removed. How? But the way that the prophet Isaiah describes it is that the punishment that brings us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. So Jesus absorbs the fullness of this punishment so that on that day we get to stand before our creator and it's removed from us. What an incredible thing to anticipate. And and it's not just the punishment. It says he is driven back or taken away, turned back your enemy, right, in the following verse. And again, if you think about Zephaniah and any, any word of prophecy, uh, as I mentioned last week, you've got to consider both the short-term and long-term fulfillment, right? Part of what Zephaniah was prophesying towards was the exile. He, he knew that because of the godlessness that existed in that society, that, that eventually they would be taken as captives into exile under the Babylonians, right? And so, so at this point in this passage, those, that remnant was holding on to a verse like this in anticipation that, that Babylon would be pushed back, right? That they would ultimately be set free. So there was a short-term anticipation of that sort of fulfillment but when you think about it more from the return and the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom what is the great enemy death we talked about that last week that the wages of sin is death all those those things that we feel under the weight of sin points to this inescapable reality of death and here we are reminded that no death is actually turned away you you get to see victory in the face of that enemy, which is why Paul writes about it so eloquently in 1 Corinthians when he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The victory belongs to Jesus Christ. And so on that day of the Lord, we get to stand with punishment removed and the enemy of death pushed back. In addition to that, later in these verses that we read, we see that God is going to deal with the oppressor. And I I think that's a, a great thing for us to reflect upon this morning as well. So the, the word op- oppressor in oppression is a very harsh word. 
It means to force someone into submission, uh, especially to inflict pain upon someone else. And, and I, I don't know everyone's story and situation. I would be willing to assume, and I think it's reasonable to assume, that, that most of us in here don't have a long list of people that are constantly trying to inflict harm on us. Now, maybe you do, though. Uh, you might have some of those relationships in your life where you're constantly being oppressed by someone. But even if that list isn't long or non-existent, I think all of us can identify with those moments and those things in life that have the same result, right? where, where we are constantly feeling the power and the force of something else upon us in a spirit of oppression, right? That, that we are constantly being subjected and, and feeling this infliction of pain upon our existence. Could be through disease, could be mental health, could be loneliness, could be depression, could be wound. Figure it out, right? Any of them. And, and so what, what we see here is that that pain, that reality is going to be removed. Right? Whatever ails you, whatever you feel oppressed by, is gone. God is going to do that. He's going to rescue the lame. The lame are all those who are wounded, hurt, crippled. Anything that has wounded you in life, God comes to your rescue by dealing with your oppressor. What an incredible thing to behold. The last one that I would point out to you in this category comes a little bit before that, where it says you will no longer fear any harm. And, and my, my hesitation, or not my hesitation, my, my inclination is to focus in on that word harm, right? It kind of feels similar to oppression, or oppression in the sense that things that could harm us or inflict pain upon us. But what I really want to call our attention to is just the simplicity of that statement, you will no longer fear, right? Like, like how many times do we see that in tandem with this promise that God is with us? That the result of God being with you is fear not, Right? And, and, and here it is again. No longer will you fear. How, how awesome is that? Because life is filled with fears, big and small. Like, like, what are some of the fears that you face or have faced? I know when I was growing up, it was snakes and spiders. Hated them. Couldn't get around a spider, big or small, man. I was in the other room. No, no thank you. Didn't want anything to do with them. And, and those were some of the the fears I had early on, as, as I grew, I realized, you know, a lot of my fears and worries and concerns were not driven by things that could maybe harm me, but really things that could maybe harm the people I love. Like, those are the fears that kind of stick with me now. Uh, I, I hate it when my kids get in cars with somebody else. Like, I just stay anxious the entire, even if it's like a grandparent or a good friend, I'm just like, I don't like this. Uh, I'm hesitant. I'm nervous. Uh, if, if my family's ever late to church, like that first song I'm singing, I'm worried. I'm like, where are they? They here? You know, I just, I, I have those random fears. And those may seem trivial, right? And they, they kind of are. But we, we know there's a lot of different ways that this fear can manifest itself in its life, in our lives, big and small. Think, think about what we're seeing today in our world, especially as a result of this pandemic. Like, what are the fears that you have? Right? I mean, so many of us are, are truly living in fear because of this virus. Like, it, it's dominated how we're interacting with each other, with the world. We have fears now related to our kids' education in schools. What kind of impact it's having. You know, all, all the concerns and the worries that go along with that. We have fears of our job security, economic stability, 
Fear is over the loss of freedoms. Fear, fear is over foreign powers and influence. I mean, we, we have so many things that we're constantly being pointed to as a source of fear. And so maybe another question is not so much what are you afraid of, but how much is fear controlling your life or influencing your life? And, and here's my point. I'm not trying to suggest that those fears are unmerited or that they're not justified. Here's what I want you to hear. Imagine a world where they no longer exist. None. Big or small. No more fears. That's what God being with you does. My daughter scared to death of snakes right now. And I can empathize. I'm like, I was with you, girl. I understand. And so going to bed at night, sometimes those thoughts get in her mind. And she's like, oh, I just can't quit thinking about anything. You know what brings her peace and calm is when mom and dad come in there and just stay with her. That's what God does. He comes into our lives, into our existence. And on that great and ultimate day, when we experience that in fullness, all fear is gone. What a beautiful thing to have removed. So it's not just what God removes. It's what he gives. And just three, three things that I want to highlight for us here. First thing that I would point out to you is that when you, when you think about the coming kingdom, you think about heaven, a lot of times we think about eternal life, right? We, we think about all those sorts of things, and, and yet there's often this depth to what we receive that we, we can often gloss over or forget. And one of the first things that, that we see in terms of insignificance is because it's repeated at least twice towards the end here of Zephaniah's book, is that one of the things we receive is praise and honor. And I love that. And, it, and it's really kind of mind-blowing because a lot of times when we think about praise at the coming kingdom, we think about praise towards, towards Christ, and, and accurately so. That's absolutely going to be central to what we do. But, but what Zephaniah is saying is that the remnant will receive praise and honor. You and, you and me, right? Praise means to be spoken of and, and to call attention to someone's excellence. Name or, or honor is, is pointing to like name, reputation. You get like this new name, so to speak. So, so think about that. Okay, so, so essentially, when you think about receiving praise and, and honor at the coming kingdom, essentially, this is that moment where all those things in your life that maybe give you insecurity about who you are or who you are not, all those things that you worry about yourself and those hesitations, those shortcomings, those mistakes, those failures, you're going to have a moment where you receive the praise of a loving Father that reminds you of the excellence that you carry because you were made in His image. Right? I mean, this is one of those things that is so hard for us to comprehend. I imagine if your love language is words of affirmation, like, get ready. Like, that's going to be amazing for you. Right? Just to be reminded of who God sees you to be. You get a new name, a new reputation, right? The, the way that Zephaniah says it, that you're going to receive praise and honor in every land where you experience the suffering of shame, right? So shame is, is this idea of disgrace and humiliation. And, and, and in particular, for the people of God in Zephaniah's context, this would be public disgrace. This would be public shame. A lot of times we have this as like kind of an inner uh, embarrassment, but, but they were literally taken captive as prisoners of war, held in, in chains and paraded around in front of others as prisoners and slaves. And think about the public 
disgrace that they experienced in that moment. And so God's saying, I'm, I'm going to replace all of that, any sort of disgrace, any sort of humiliation, you're going to receive honor and praise instead. And, and what's so remarkable about it is that it's not just that we're going to get to say that to each other necessarily, but that it's God that is the one that is giving us that praise and that honor. Right? Did you see what it said leading up to that, that, that he delights in you, that he will sing over you. How incredible is that, right? In fact, the way Zephaniah says it in those earlier verses, it says, in his love, he will delight over you, which is a reminder of this other uh, thing that we can anticipate to receive, something we've talked about on several occasions. What we have awaiting for us on that day is his love. And you think about all the love you've ever experienced in this world, all the different ways that it has found you and that you have found its comfort, its warmth, its embrace. You take all of that and multiply it again exponentially, and that's the love that awaits you in God. And I hope we, we value that the way that we should, to know that, that that coming day is not just that we love Christ and that we love God, but that we will be loved by Christ and we are to be loved by God. I mean, I think about when I fell in love with Jennifer. Um, I got there before she did shocker and and i remember it like we were standing outside the theta house at ou's campus and there was nothing significant about the moment it's not like we had come back from this crazy awe-inspiring date i think i just kind of stopped by and we we're just talking out in the front yard and i just remember being kind of overwhelmed by my feelings for her in the moment and i i was like getting to that point where i, I was about to say it and i think she sensed i was about to say it and so she gave me every nonverbal cue possible to be like no now's not the time you know she's like oh I gotta go, you know, but thanks for stopping by. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and I left somewhat like deflated because it kind of hit me in that moment. Like, it's great to fall in love with someone, but what if she doesn't love me back? You know, and, and that was kind of uh, heart-wrenching in the moment. But, but what's so incredible about love is that it's a two-way street. And what makes it flourish and so powerful is not just that you get to love, but you get to be loved. And that's what we find on that day. Not just that we love God, but we are loved by God. And we find the fullness of his love. Let, let me close with this one. Um, I love the simplicity of it. It's there at the end, right as he's talking about praise and honor and all this stuff, he says, and I will bring you home. And I love that. When I first read that, I was like, I, that is so beautiful. We get to finally go Right? And, and something that you just kind of feel like your heart longing for. There's just something about being at home. And so I, I was really excited to study that part of the passage. And so like I flipped to it. And, and as I get to kind of the original language, I discover it's actually not in there. <laughs> there is no Hebrew word for home. And I was kind of disappointed. I was like, what? Man, I wanted to like study that word and see what it means. Talk about it. What's going on here? So what it, all it really is, is I will bring you. That's the verb. And so there's an interpretation for it that's trying to convey the sentiment of it. But, but what it said to me when I began to reflect upon that and study that was that essentially it's a reminder that home for us is not a de destination or a place, it's a person. The great gift is not that we get heaven, but we get God. We get to be brought back into him. We get to see the 
fullness of what it means to be with him. And everything that we experience in this life that is emblematic of brokenness and sin is because of this separation that exists between us and God. And so Jesus' birth is a sign and an indicator that all of us can hold on to and see as an anchor that this promise of Emmanuel has been fulfilled. We can trust it, we can know it, we can see it, but we still long for its fullness, to be with God in entirety. That's what we long for. That is the day of the Lord that we so eagerly expect. And so our lives here should be lived with such anticipation that we fill them with joy. We have these moments to to build that anticipation of this day where we get to see our punishment taken away, the enemy of death pushed back, all the things that inflict harm and pain upon us are removed, that we never have to fear again, that we can anticipate a day to receive praise and honor from our creator, to be found fully loved by him and fully in his presence. We anticipate that day in fullness and in glory and in strength and resolve. And if we do so, what that means is that our lives should become a testimony to the song that we love to sing at Christmas time. We don't just look back on the birth of Jesus, but we anticipate the return of Jesus. And our lives are a continual prayer to say, come long expected Jesus. Come and set your people free. Let's pray. Father God, we do anticipate that return. We're so grateful that you allow our lives to be filled with beautiful moments of joy, beautiful moments that give us glimpses of your love and of your goodness, give us assurances of this promise. But God, we want its fullness. We long for that day where we get to stand before you, not by anything that we have done or deserved, but only by your strength and by your merit. An opportunity to stand before you, forgiven and overwhelmed by your grace. An opportunity to see the fullness of what it means to be with you. And so, Father, we do ask that while we celebrate this life and every day that you give us, we anticipate what is to come. And we cry out now, Father, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Father, we ask that you would come and set your people free. Set us free in a way that allows us to give you the glory that you so richly and wonderfully deserve. We love you, Father. And we pray all these things in your precious and your holy name. Amen and amen.